The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody. This is Joseph Schuldenrein broadcasting from New York City, and we are very pleased to do a very unique program today that involves an assessment and an overview of what community-based archaeology is all about. We will actually be delving into the research, but one of the major uh, accomplishments that my present guest has been known for and is a major proponent of is community-based archaeology. And my very special guest is Dr. Barbara Voss, who is an associate professor at Stanford University. She got her PhD at the University of California, Berkeley in 2002. She has a very, very interesting perspective and a very unique background that contemporary archaeologists who are now becoming senior archaeologists have, and that is that she has extensive experience in the private sector. She has worked for um, uh, Woodward Clyde Consultants, in Oakland, California, and then she moved on into academic studies, and her research includes historic archaeology and sexuality studies. Within historical archaeology, her research focuses on the dynamics and outcomes of transnational cultural encounters in the Americas, and that's one of the aspects that we're going to be discussing today. Her research includes ongoing investigations of the Spanish colonization of the Americas, and most recently, she has expanded her work on cultural encounters into the archaeology of overseas Chinese communities in the 19th and 20th centuries. In this capacity, she serves as the principal investigator of the Market Street Chinatown Archaeology Project, which is a community-based research program developed to study and interpret the history and archaeology of San Jose's first Chinese community. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the program, Barbara. Thank you for being part of it. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Let's talk a little bit about the community-based archaeology program that you have been so instrumental in advancing in our profession generally. Why don't you tell us how you got started in that 
and how that type of program, how you see that kind of program advancing in the practice of archaeology going forward? Well, I think that for me, working with communities really began as as you described in your introduction, with my experience working in the private sector as a consulting archaeologist doing environmental compliance work. And that was really like like so many North American archaeologists where my career began. And in that work, you end up working very closely with land managing agencies, government agencies, government permit offices, um, with uh, corporations that are doing development or pipeline projects or things like that, and then with the communities that are being affected by those projects, and particularly for the archaeologists, the communities whose heritage is being impacted. And through that work, you know, part of that work is doing the archaeology, but a large part of that work is about coordinating and communicating across these different interest groups and stakeholders to try to negotiate solutions to development problems that are impacting historic and archaeological sites. And it was through that process as a very young archaeologist in the 1980s and early 1990s that I began to develop really strong, long-lasting relationships with different heritage groups here in the San Francisco Bay Area where I do my research. Native Californians, the descendants of colonial populations, um, um, Chinese Americans, other stakeholder groups who have real passionate and, and direct connections with the kinds of archaeological sites that are typically impacted by development in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is, you know, growing to be one of the largest urban areas in the United States. And so, so it was really through that early experience. And then, um, you know, through that, as in, when I shifted more into academic-based work um, and uh, got my Ph.D. and then moved into um, teaching and research at Stanford University, I wanted to bring some of those same principles of community-based engagement into my work in academia. And I've very, been very fortunate both to receive support from UC Berkeley and Stanford University in doing that, but also um, from the government agencies and local heritage groups that I work with. So it's really been a threat throughout my career, and I think that, you know, for myself and for many other um, archaeologists who are trained in the 80s and the 90s, it has been a part of our it has been a part of our work from the very beginning, especially here in the United States, where cultural resource management law um, requires and really, and I think in a very good way, mandates consultation and engagement with affected community groups. I think that um, this is probably one of the most important aspects of contemporary archaeology. I mean, very often... Uh, people in our profession are looked upon as being basically very academic, cloistered people who are basically taking uh, particular research projects, some might say esoteric projects, and sit in dry museum labs and just process artifacts and nobody knows that they're even around. They will occasionally write a paper in an obscure journal, and that is the image. But what is going on now, and we're seeing it in very many parts of the country, especially here in, uh, in the United States, is that there is an engagement. There is an engagement to incorporate, uh, to incorporate 
minority people to incorporate disenfranchised groups. And I think in some ways to integrate the residents, especially in urban America, into the types of historic preservation programs that are not just research-oriented, but also involve preservation of their environment. So I'd like you to tell me a little bit about the Asian community and how their perspective may have changed a little bit or have been integrated into the type of work that you've been leading. Sure. So, you know, San Francisco and the San Francisco Bay Area was one of the centers of Asian immigration to the United States from the 19th century onwards. And there is, there has been and continues to be a very large, very important population of, of Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, Filipino Americans, South Asian folks, you know, whole spectrum. One of the, but, but I think that in the story we tell about the United States um, and the United States history, that often the contributions of Asian immigrants is often overlooked in comparison to the discussion we often have about the importance of European immigration to the United States. Um, one of the things right. that I learned very early in my career was that um, there there is a great interest among today's Chinese American, Japanese American communities in identifying, protecting, and preserving the 19th century heritage sites that document the importance and the contributions made by Asian immigrants during that period. And so from the beginnings of my career, you, you encounter historic archaeology sites throughout California, almost any project you might work on. You're very likely to encounter archaeological sites associated with Asian immigration, and they provide an opportunity. Those sites and those deposits provide an opportunity to engage with this aspect of American history that is not always fully told. And I think I think that's that's really one of the topics that I would like you to expand upon. I, I think most mm -hmm. people in the United States, people who are at least somewhat familiar with history, make the association of Asian Americans and and especially the Chinese community in conjunction with the Transcontinental Railroad mm -hmm. and their participation in the older mining communities and ultimately as being a part of service worker uh, groups uh, in urban areas. And I'm wondering how the Asian communities themselves are starting to change their own image or, or their own impression of what archaeologists do and, and how they start to integrate and be part of a, a joint program that would try to integrate their own observations and uh, establish their mm -hmm. own priorities when you're doing preservation and archaeological work. How do you see that evolving and where do you see it going? Well, the work that we're doing in um, San Jose, California, provides a really great example of this process where um, present-day Asian communities in San Francisco, Asian American communities in, in the United States are becoming involved with archaeology and really partnering in a very, in a very collaborative way with archaeologists. The Market Street Chinatown site, which was San Jose's first Chinatown, we believe it was actually at the time the second largest Chinese population and Chinese community in the United States, located in downtown San Jose. And this community was there from about 1862 to 1887. And the archaeological site of the Market Street Chinatown was rediscovered during excavations in the 1980s where they were building a really large luxury hotel and a business and a business tower and a business skyscraper during the uh -huh. construction excavations I'm oh, sorry please go ahead 
No, no, that that's what I was interested in. I mean, were yeah. these these obviously were funded by municipal agencies to some degree, or state agencies, or federal? Well, because otherwise, as you know, um, we don't necessarily fund these sorts of things in the private sector unless we absolutely have to. Absolutely, and what happened in this case was actually that the the Chinese the the, the archaeological deposits of the Chinatown had not been prioritized for preservation by the city of San Jose. But once artifacts started uh-huh. started being discovered, and this was during 1985 to 1988, once artifacts started being discovered, the Chinese-American community really organized and put pressure on the city to make sure that the site was properly researched and commemorated. And, in fact, an organization was formed, Chinese Historical and Cultural Project, the group that I work with today, to provide basically an organization not only to um, work with archaeologists, work with historians, um, the group fundraised for and built a museum, the Chinese American Historical Museum in San Jose, and then also developed curricular programs to supplement school curriculum in Santa Clara County, where San Jose is located. And that all came from the controversy around this original excavation, the construction of this hotel and office building in downtown San Jose that unearthed the remains of this 19th century Chinatown. The community response to that was critical in developing long-term partnerships between archaeologists and local Chinese Americans who were really, who've been really dedicated to making sure that their history, their ancestors' contributions to California and United States history are not just ignored when development is occurring. And since then, Chinese Historical and Cultural Project has partnered now with four different groups of archaeologists to study um, Chinese-associated sites throughout Santa Clara County. They've, been, they've received awards from the Society of Historical Archaeology and from the Society of California Archaeology for their really excellent work with the archaeological community. And I actually think a group like Chinese Historical and Cultural Project provides a great model of how local community groups who are not, or local communities who are not archaeologists themselves can nonetheless form organizations or form partnerships that allow them to have a significant stake in both advocating for the preservation of their heritage and also participating in, in that research. And, you know, one of the things I, I hope we'll have a chance to talk about is what that brings to archaeology, because the cultural knowledge and the historical knowledge held by these communities is priceless in our investigations. And that's really one of the biggest gifts that, well, um, that we've received through that. Of course, and, and, and that, was, that, was, that was what I was going to ask you next. Obviously, yeah. there are oral traditions that are historical, of historical age. There are clearly going to be um, maps, and there's going to be mm-hmm. uh, census records, and there are going to be plat maps. How mm-hmm. have you worked in conjunction with the local communities to assemble all this information? And are you, in fact... Um, getting uh, the Chinese Americans involved in the actual work itself, or mm-hmm. is it mainly as part of a more extensive outreach project? Well, I have to say the direction actually kind of goes in the opposite direction, where you know this is an organization that formed in the 1980s, and they really recruited me to work with them on this research. So, and I, I began working with Chinese Historical and Cultural Project in 2002. So they take a very active, very proactive role in um, 
in ensuring that the archaeological materials that represent their heritage are properly studied and are actively under investigation. It's very true that there's a lot of information that's held by communities about history that is not accessible through other means, and particularly in the case of the Market Street Chinatown, which was which was very sadly destroyed in an arson fire in 1887 during the anti-Chinese movement. Um, most of the documentary records, the official documentary records of that community were destroyed in that fire. And as a result, a lot of the contextual information that we rely on in archaeology is really held in the community. Oral tradition, as you mentioned, family records, things that are kept in family archives like photographs, letters, um, other things like that, um, and also living practices, things that people, um, things that people still do that have been handed down through the generations, as well as beliefs or attitudes or cultural knowledge that's been transmitted from great grandparents and grandparents to their children and grandchildren. And so, without that piece of it, without that community partnership, our view of the Market Street Chinatown would be very partial. Just to give one concrete example, a big focus of our research has been food studies, um, and that came in part through our community consultation. Now, archaeologists conventionally classify food-related plants either according to, to botanical material or according to the kind of categories that are common in the Euro-American diet, right, like meat, vegetables, you know, starch, whatever that might be. But one of the things we were able to do through our work with Chinese Historical and Cultural Project was learn about how different ingredients would have been viewed and used from within the perspective of Cantonese tradition. And in our publications and our reports, by organizing the data that way, we see patterns we would not have otherwise seen. In other words, we're using the appropriate cultural categories to analyze the scientific data that we've gathered. And that's just one small example of how essential that community-based knowledge can be to proper analysis of archaeological results, because without that, we're kind of working in the dark. Um, we're making a lot of assumptions rather than working from grounded knowledge. And we will be back with our very special guest, Dr. Barbara Voss uh, from Stanford University after these words. Uh, stay tuned, please. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you ready for an anything-goes, hour-long foray into politics, pop culture, and societal tribulations? Then look no further than Between the Synapse with host Mark Tobin. Each show features nationally or internationally prominent guests discussing topics that go beyond the usual daily news, sometimes even way beyond. It's a weekly fast-paced hour that you won't want to miss. Call in to join the party. Between the Synapse airs live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We all love our best friend. 
especially when that best friend is a canine best friend. Now there's a show just for the dogs or the people who love them. Tune in to Dogs Rock Radio with host Pamela Hill. With your stories and advice from the experts, we'll show just how much love and purpose dogs bring to our lives and others around us. You'll also learn about canine fitness, training, and health and wellness. Make Dogs Rock Radio a weekly stop every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern on Voice America Variety. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and today's program on Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology is a fascinating discussion with Dr. Barbara Voss, the, an associate professor of anthropology at Stanford University, who has extensively worked with uh, Asian communities and Chinese communities in uh, the San Jose, California area. And she has been working uh, not just in community outreach and in cooperative ventures with the local population and the archaeologists, but she is also conducting some very, very interesting interdisciplinary research that draws upon the oral traditions and the more classical traditions of uh, the Chinese Americans who have lived in that part of the country since the mid-19th century. We've been talking about food and diet and uh, how those uh, particular elements are uh, known and how we get better documentation from them and about them based on not just looking at the archaeological record, but actually consulting with uh, the... the uh, records themselves with, I think, to some degree with, uh, with census information and also with the traditional types of foods that uh, the Chinese Americans um, have, have uh, utilized in their diet. Now, one of the things that I want you to disabuse me of is um, a volume I read a book about you know, 10 years ago, which basically had indicated that the Chinese food that we eat here traditionally in, 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 in let's just say, Caucasian society is not really what is eaten in China, and that one of the traditions that emerged was a product of the fact that the Chinese were very often cooks and worked in the culinary industries when the railroads were being built. And as a result, they incorporated some American dietary uh, preferences with Chinese uh, preferences into this potpourri that eventually became the type of stuff that we would order in, in uh, contemporary Chinese restaurants. Is there any truth to that? or, or um, what, what, what can you tell me about that? I think there's 
there's a lot of truth to what you described there. And in fact, I think during this period, really 1850 to 1890, what we see is the development of two distinct Chinese-American cuisines. One is a Chinese-American cuisine that's eaten by Chinese immigrants and Chinese-Americans that tends to follow a lot of the principles of Cantonese cooking, but includes a lot of diverse ingredients that were that are new ingredients that are available in the United States but not commonly right. available in China. Then mm-hmm. there's also the development of a second kind of Chinese-American food that's really aimed at a non-Chinese diner that uses ingredients that are more familiar to Euro-Americans, that, um, that has a different balance of the kinds of foods that are included that might be a little sweeter, a little saltier, um, to appeal to Euro-American tastes. And what we have an opportunity to study in a place like the Market Street Chinatown is that first kind of Chinese-American cuisine, the Chinese-American cuisine that developed among and for Chinese immigrants, the food that they cooked for themselves. And that, while there's been a lot of great studies of the development of Chinese-American restaurants and the development of cookbooks that were marketed to non-Chinese, there isn't as much information about how Chinese-Americans and Chinese immigrants were preparing food for themselves in their own communities. And that's part of what we get a chance to look at through this assemblage. You mentioned earlier the interdisciplinarity of this work, and I want to stress that we've had a great team of scientists contributing to this research. Um, scholars at University of Idaho, University of Massachusetts, Boston, Indiana University, and the Paleo Research Institute Institution in Colorado, also CSU Bakersfield, people who have incredible specialized knowledge about identifying particular types of, of animal and plant remains in the archaeological record. And so, you know, part of the collaborative nature of this project is the collaboration between between academics and community members, but the other part of it is the collaboration among academics themselves, among researchers who are bringing together diverse skills. Um, so it's a really rare opportunity, not just because the nature of the site and what it represents, but also because of the constellation of researchers who've been willing to lend their expertise to this study. Let me ask you this about excavation itself. You had mentioned the footprint of a planned hotel in San Jose. Uh, Mm -hmm. My question to you is, what about the actual excavation of the footprint of the site? Was it done on the order of lots or divided uh, land uh, land units, uh, Mm. parcels that were associated with individual houses, industrial areas, et cetera, et cetera? How was it excavated, and what was the zonation of the 19th century community? in San Jose at the time? Well, the, the 19th century community in San Jose was um, what we what today we call a multi-use urban area. So you have um, stores and professional buildings alongside light industry. You have, um, you have entertainment areas like an opera house. You've got a temple. And there's also tenement buildings where the majority of, of people live, most of them adult men who had left their families behind in China to come to the United States to work. And so it's a very, it was a very densely packed neighborhood. And as archaeologists, we always think about trash. That's what we study. And what the excavators during oh, the 1980s, well, during, the excavators during the 1980s, what they prioritized was excavating the trash pits that were located in kind of the backyards and the alleyways of the community. And what we can do is, using historic maps, is we've been able to associate those trash pits with certain regions in the Chinatown. 
areas where there was primarily tenement housing or areas where primarily merchants and their families lived um, above their stores or some of the light industrial areas that were in another part of the block. And so through that, we can get a sense of what kinds of objects, what kinds of foods were being used by slightly different populations within the Chinatown. But unlike a lot of historic sites where you have one family contributing to one trash deposit, this is an urban site. So you've got a lot of people throwing their trash in the same place. Very different situation. Are you able to distinguish individual parcels that are indicated by the plat maps and by the property maps, as well as uh, isolate them in terms of the type of debris and the type of uh, trash that they have? Or was it all going into community types of rubble? For the most part, the trash was being deposited in community picks, and these are Woodline pits that were excavated in, again, alongside alleyways or in some of the semi-open areas in the middle of the block. This is a community, only one block large, very densely populated, about a 1,000 people living on a single urban block in downtown San Jose. Mm. And so, um, so waste management was very systematized. It was clearly something that the community had put a lot of thought into. And we're not able to associate particular trash deposits with specific um, families or or tenement buildings what we are able to do because there because there were areas where certain kinds of buildings were clustered together we are able to say well this particular trash deposit is closest to a bunch of tenement housing and likely the people in the tenements threw their trash in this deposit or this this trash deposit is located in the back alley behind a bunch of different stores this probably contains a lot of deposits from merchants and their families that's the level at which we're able to distinguish it. One of the benefits of that is actually that we kind of get a community-wide perspective. When you're studying deposits that are associated with individual households, a single-family event, like a death in the family, can really change the nature of the materials that's being deposited there. Mm-hmm. When you're studying deposits that the entire community contributed to or to that a large number of people contributed to, that kind of smooths out some of those um, irregularities and you get a more composite picture of shared practices, kind of what was everyone doing together. And I think there's a lot of value in that, particularly for studying urban deposits where people were living so closely together and where a lot of daily life had to be negotiated in community. And that brings us to another point that I think is very, very critical. Uh, one of them that you uh, that immediately comes to mind when you talk about this very, very dense concentration of people in what was it? You said it was one block. One one city block. Yes. One city block. What about issues like, for example, overlapping with adjacent communities? And secondly, what about sanitary conditions and the possibility of of the various types of diseases that we know were running rampant in many parts of the United States in the nineteenth century? Yeah. Yeah, those are great questions. There was a section of the block, and this is along um, along First Street, so the the um, the western edge of the block actually had a few um, European immigrant and Euro-American-owned businesses. And as best as we can tell from the contents of the trash deposits, it doesn't look like the trash deposits that we have artifacts from. And again, I say what we've got because this is a this is a collection that was generated in the middle of 
of, of building construction. So we know there were some deposits that were lost in the process of building construction. So it was kind of a salvage operation. Um, and we received the collection 20 years after that. So we're kind of right. dealing with what was collected. Um, but there were Euro-Americans living on the block, mostly on the western side, um, some hotel businesses, a couple other kinds of businesses, a, a couple apartment buildings. Um, in terms of sanitary conditions, that was an issue that was a great concern in 19th century cities. And it's one of the things we're really interested in trying to study. And um, one of the preliminary results we've gotten back, and this has come out of the study of soil samples that were collected during excavations, mm-hmm. is that there was a very, there was a comparatively low parasite load. Usually in urban deposits, you have really high evidence of parasites. Parasites were very common in urban populations. You know, these are Absolutely. And the evidence we have so far suggests that the, China, the Market Street Chinatown in downtown San Jose, the population actually had a very low parasite load, but it was relatively healthy. And that points to good sanitation practices. And can you reconstruct those sanitation practices based on historic records or documents? It's one of the things we're working on, and I don't have anything definitive on that at this point. You know, a lot of those records we know were destroyed in the, in the 1887 fire. One of my master's students, um, a student named Pearl Lun, is currently doing a study of medicine bottles in the Market Street Chinatown collection. And her goal is to try to use the medicine bottles to get a sense of what diseases or conditions residents right. in Market Street Chinatown were suffering from, or at least what they were treating through labeled medicines. And we're also working with a chemist at University of Idaho um, to identify um, chemically identify the residues in some of those medicine bottles. Now, she's still in the middle of her thesis research, so I don't want to jump the gun here, but one of the things that's been most interesting is her preliminary findings so far is that most of the remedies that she's been able to identify are really pain relievers. Um, the kind, you know, the, the equivalent of aspirin or Tylenol that people, or ibuprofen that people today would take after a long day of hard work or because of joint pain or something like that. And so she's not seeing a lot of evidence of contagious disease in the medicine bottles themselves. Now, her research is still in progress and, um, and I don't want to overstate the findings at this point, but I think it's a pro- it, it, it corresponds well with the parasite data that this is a community that actually seems to have been pretty healthy um, and that the, the, the health stress they were under probably had more to do with occupational stress, um, you know, work-related issues, you know, from you know, joints, muscle pain, things like that, than things having to do with contagious disease. What about herbalist uh, remedies that have always been traditionally used in uh, in the Chinese mainland, as well as having been imported to the New World? This has been one of the exciting findings of our research. What we see is that, um, first of all, in the archaeobotanical remains, we do see a lot of plant specimens, of plant species that are typically used not for food but for medicine, and. Um, and and that indicates, and there, and we also know from city directories that there were at least five traditional Chinese doctors who were operating in the Market Street Chinatown who had offices there. So it's clear that residents were likely going to herbalists and doctors um, for traditional Chinese medicine, but they were also purchasing medicines from Euro-American pharmacists. They were buying patent medicines, um, proprietary medicines that were advertised as specific cures, 
and they were purchasing compounded pharmaceuticals from nearby um, Euro American pharmacists. And we can tell this from the bottles that we find in the collection. And so it's actually a very interesting moment, I think, in American medical history um, where we see this blending, this articulation between allopathic and, um, and traditional Chinese medicine. We've also found a few homeopathic medicine vials in the collection. Right. Um, and so there's some really interesting health practices that are going on, and it's a big topic of research for us. We're really excited to be getting some information about this, and we think it's going to be a big focus of continuing research. And we will be back with our final segment of the program after these words. Stay tuned. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. How do you achieve the utmost success in your life, career, faith, relationships, and more? It's all here in the business of living with host Scott Ventrella. Scott has experience as an executive coach, sought-after speaker, and lecturer. He and his guests will offer practical solutions and strategies to help you move to the next level of success, no matter where you are in your life and career. The Business of Living airs live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ah, a nice glass of wine is very refreshing after the end of a long day. But have you ever considered the story behind the wine? Tune in to Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio with your hosts, Roger and Donna Beery. You'll meet some of the people behind the world's wineries, travel the wine country, and learn more about that glass that you're enjoying. Roger and Donna will also give would-be vintners a behind-the-scenes look at starting a winery. Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio airs live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein, and we are discussing uh, community archaeology with uh, Dr. Barbara Voss, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Stanford University. And we've been discussing 
a variety of topics associated with her investigations of the Chinese and Chinese-American communities in San Jose, California, and generally in, in, on the West Coast. Uh, what I do want to talk about, and this is a topic that I think a lot of people are interested in, is the feedback. Uh, we have, obviously, many of us who uh, come from immigrant backgrounds, we all do ultimately, um, are interested in integration and uh, the entire melting pot syndrome and how mm -hmm. there was interaction between various ethnic communities and the greater immunity as it emerged on the scene specifically uh, from the mid-19th century onward. And we had discussed during the break that there is kind of like a little feedback loop between the Chinese community that we've been talking about here in San Jose and their impacts on the greater American society and vice versa. Uh, Dr. Voss, why don't you tell us a little bit about how the archaeology and historic documentation inform on that? Great, yeah. Well, this is one of our newest research initiatives, and it came again out of the community-based research process. We had a meeting about two and a half years ago with Chinese Historical and Cultural Project where we presented some of our preliminary results. One of the primary questions that community members had for us was, well, how does this compare to what Euro-Americans were doing at the same time? And we thought that was a great question. And so we started a countywide comparative research program where we're gathering information about other archaeological projects that have been done in Santa Clara County from the same time period, the late 19th century, and starting to set that up into a master database to allow us to compare two different things, really. One is what kinds of practices were, were European immigrants and Euro-Americans um, doing in their home life and in their businesses that then may have been adopted by Chinese, Chinese immigrants, immigrants and Chinese Americans. And I can tell you one interesting example we've seen already, which is that, as you might guess, pork was a real staple of the diet at the Market Street Chinatown. Yeah. But archaeologically, right. we also see a lot of beef coming in. And here's the interesting thing. While the pork is primarily cleaver cut, it's butchered in a conventional Chinese culinary manner, the beef is cut into chops and steaks. It's saw cut in a manner consistent with Euro-American butchering styles. Um, and this is something you just do not find in Guangdong. This is not how people in southern China prepare their meat. And so it's clear right. that some members of the Market Street Chinatown were shopping in the same places as some of their Euro-American neighbors for some of their meat and adopting a new way of preparing their food. The question that we're interested in finding out is, was that going in the other direction? And by looking at um, archaeological deposits, the collections from archaeological deposits associated with European immigrants and European Americans who were also in the San Jose area, we're going to have a chance to see whether some of the imported foods and imported um, cultural material um, also were then being adopted by non-Chinese. Was there culture flow in both directions? And I think this is a really exciting direction for our research to go. We often think of culture change as flowing kind of from Europe to other ethnic groups. And I don't think we always take into account how influential contact with Asia has been in the forming of United States culture. And so we're really excited about this new research. And we've already got a few preliminary findings that indicate that, yes, indeed, there certainly were non-Chinese residents of San Jose who were probably shopping in Chinatown quite a bit and experimenting with Asian foods and Asian material culture in their daily lives as well. Tell us a little bit about the orphaned collections, um, which is a very sensitive uh, topic for archaeologists. <laughs> 
archaeologists who are traditionally saying that collections of artifacts are meaningless unless they are associated with the context in which they were found. We know that uh, that's a blanket statement, obviously, and there are uh, secondary contexts, if you will, or contexts mm -hmm. that are artificially created and... Uh, I don't want to be accused of heresy, but nevertheless, that's the kind of information that we also have to be able to use, especially yeah. if we can reconstruct the pathway uh, at which the orphan collections adopted their uh, their new context, if you will. Tell us a little bit about what you've done with that, because I know you've done a fair amount of work with that. Uh, well, you know, this is a huge problem in archaeology. Archaeologists love to excavate, and we tend not to put as much energy and funding into taking care of the collections we generate through our projects. The Market Street Chinatown collection, you know, after the excavations that occurred during the construction of the hotel and the business center, um, for a variety of reasons, that collection ended up in the back area of the municipal warehouse where it was totally inaccessible. And one of the reasons why Chinese Historical and Cultural Projects approached me um, through another archaeologist they had been working with was because they needed help and technical support in getting that collection back into research and proper curation. And they made arrangements with the local history museum to assume proper curation of the collection, so it's got a long-term permanent home. One uh -huh. of the things that I find is that working with collections brings you know, we often think of excavation as the ultimate archaeological activity, right? Digging and discovery. Well, you know, working with collections, you have the same experiences of discovery. When my students and I are working on the Market Street Chinatown collection, when we pull another box out of the storage area and we bring it up to the lab and we open the lid, we don't know what's going to be in there. We have no idea. It's exciting. It's really surprising sometimes how much has been preserved and, and the unique and and really challenging artifacts that really reshape our perception of Chinese-American life during this time. So I think that one thing we're hoping to do with this project is really using the demonstration project of how knowledge in archaeology is not just created at the site of excavation. It's also created in the laboratory. It's created during the basic processes of cataloging and inventory. These are also intellectual projects. And... Um, the thrill of discovery in the lab can be just as exciting as the thrill of discovery in the field. Of course it is, yeah. Um, another question that I, I have is, have you found within the community uh, of San Jose that Chinese Americans are drawn to archaeology, that uh, they might even consider pursuing careers in it, or is that not something that um, has been happening? Well, historically, there have been very few Asians, Amer Asian Americans involved in archaeology as professionals and scholars, and in the United States, this has been very rare. In fact, um, you know, it's it's one of the smallest ethnic minorities within organizations like the Society for American Archaeology, the Science Society for Historical Archaeology. I think we are yes. seeing change. We are seeing, particularly in current generations of students, undergraduates and graduate students, an increasing number of Asian Americans who are interested in pursuing archaeology. And I think projects like this do help make cultural connections between the historical interests. Um, a lot of the students who end up working with me often started their majors in history or Asian American studies. They take a class related to the Market Street Chinatown, and then they start getting involved in archaeology. They see how archaeology can contribute to the kinds of historical questions they're interested in. So I do think that there is a way that projects like this can open up some new pathways. 
I also think it's really important to continue working with with community members who may or may not have a professional interest in archaeology, but who can really value what archaeology does and what it can bring to their community history. And so whether or not we recruit a bunch of archaeologists through this project isn't really the main goal. It's really about connecting knowledges, connecting community knowledge with archaeological knowledge and building something more complete than either of those alone could ever be. What about the new directions that your research is taking and how is it building on the blocks that you've constructed from your earlier research? Are you uh, addressing newer, more sophisticated research problems? And are you able to hone in on new questions for your research that is brought about by some of the earlier work that you've been able to put together? You know, we're really able to answer questions at a level we couldn't at the beginning. This collection is huge. It's about 400 file size boxes of material. For the first 10 years, we simply were doing basic cataloging and inventory. At this point, we've cataloged and inventoried about 80% of the collection. We are just at the tipping point where we can start asking systematic, site-wide questions. Um, whereas before, we might have, say, for example, a student might do a research project on a small group of artifacts from one particular trash pit. Now we can start doing projects like the master's student project I mentioned earlier, looking at medicine bottles from the entire collection from across the whole Chinatown. Our work on food, for example, has started to uncover some subtle differences of food consumption within the Market Street Chinatown collection. Um, one thing we found, and it's been actually very surprising to me, is that trash pits associated with tenements, um, which are typically thought of as the most poor members of a Chinatown society, um, have greater variety in fruits and vegetables than those associated with merchant families. And mm. this is a finding that's totally counterintuitive to us because usually you think of purchasing power increasing variety in the diet. Now, it makes a little more sense when you think about the fact that a lot of Chinese Americans in 19th century San Jose were involved in food-related industry, right? Agricultural right. work, right. canning, um, restaurant work, chefs, as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, that may have actually given people who had little economic means access to a really rich and varied diet. That's not a question we could have asked even five years ago. We simply didn't have enough of the collection inventoried and processed and analyzed to begin doing those kinds of comparisons. And I think that while a lot of archaeological work has tended to focus on interactions between ethnic groups, like how did, for example, Chinese immigrant life compared to, say, German immigrant life or Irish sure. immigrant life, we're going to start being able to ask questions about variation within immigrant communities, like places like the Market Street Chinatown. Um, and I'm excited about that. I think that's going to contribute a whole new perspective to our understanding of daily life in 19th century America. What about demographics? What is the archaeological record telling you about changing demographics, changing mm -hmm. uh, even within the communities, say the vocations changing, the settlements changing? The, well, we know it's, it's one major block, but did mm -hmm. the families radiate outward eventually? Was there a time mm -hmm. after which the, uh, the block, if we want to call it that, uh, began to fragment and people started to disperse in other parts, either of of the greater Euro-American community or within other Chinese-American enclaves in uh, greater San Jose? Yeah. Well, at the Market Street Chinatown, the reason why the Market Street Chinatown is no longer there today is because of the anti-Chinese movement. It was destroyed right. in a person fire in 1887. 
And so that fire really precipitated relocation of Chinese immigrants and Chinese Americans from downtown San Jose to a couple different settlements in other parts of San Jose. And some folks just left the area altogether because of the discrimination they were facing. And so we do see, after 1887, a pattern of increased dispersal, although there were some Chinatowns still in San Jose and other locations up until around the 1920s, 1930s. In California, and I think the rest of the United States, the demographics of Chinese America was really affected by the 1882 Exclusion Act, which pretty much, this is the Chinese, Chinese Exclusion Act, it was, a, it was a federal law, the first immigration law ever to target a specific ethnic group, and it severely curtailed uh-huh. the ability of Chinese to migrate to the United States. What we really see after about 1890 is a real a, a gradual decrease across the board throughout the U.S. West in the populations of Chinese in cities like San Jose and also in more rural areas. And that that story also played out in San Jose. There still are descendants of the Market Street Chinatown living in San Jose, and some of them live still quite close to the Market Street Chinatown. And they are many, many of those people are the core members of the group that we collaborate with, Chinese Historical and Cultural Project. And they probably have the longest standing connection and provide some continuity in trying to reconstruct the entire picture here. Absolutely. Their work, their historical research, their family knowledge, and um, their dedication to archaeology has been just incredible. I think that San Jose's Chinatown is one of the most researched Chinatowns in the United States, next to New York and um, in San Francisco. And it's really because of the dedication of these descendants and also other Chinese Americans who moved to the area more recently but are also interested in Chinese American history who have really pushed this work forward so that we're able to work at a level of nuance that just simply wasn't possible 20 years ago. Are there any ongoing excavations in San Jose on the Chinese-American community? There's one project that's been going on and off at one of the settlements, a settlement called Highlandville, that was um, founded after the 1887 fire that destroyed the Market Street Chinatown. And um, Adrian mm-hmm. Pricellis and Mary Pricellis and other researchers at Sonoma State University have been working with Chinese Historical and Cultural Project on that site. Um, the work has been a little intermittent because of changing conditions, um, but there's been some great research they've done there, and um, there's some they've got some preliminary results, and we're all waiting for the final the final uh, final outcome of that. So that's really the only site that I'm aware of that's actually still left for research. Almost all of the sites have been destroyed by development, and the reason why the Hymanville Chinatown site is being excavated right now, or not not at this moment, but has been excavated on and off over the past few years, is also because of development pressures. So especially in these urban areas where urban development has happened so quickly, it's so important that these sites be studied properly before they completely disappear, because this is... As much as any documentary archive, the archaeological record is an incredible, important archive of the formation of early American culture. And when it's gone, it's gone. You know, there's no quite. You know, you can't. We can't reproduce an archaeological site. You can't repair it once it's once it's destroyed. 
So yeah, it's been very exciting. That's one of our today. themes. That's one yeah. of our recurring themes. Yeah. Uh, the hour has flown by, I'm sorry to say. I want to thank you very much, Dr. Barbara Voss, for sharing the hour with us and uh, opening our eyes to um, Chinese Americans and the archaeology of their communities and their legacy. And I'm sure we will be hearing more from you as the years go by. Thank you so much for participating in the program and uh, stay well. Thank you. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's really a joy to be able to share this work with your audience. Thank you. Thank you very much and we'll see you all next time. Until then, good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.